Good morning. Glad you're with us today. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we are continuing our study that we began last week on spiritual stability. Last week we learned about standing firm as we uh, studied exhaustively verse 1 of chapter 4, and today we're going to learn about the necessity of peace and harmony for spiritual stability. So the title of the message is Spiritual Stability, Peace and Harmony, found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And if you'll join me there with your copy of God's Word, it says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now we're talking about seven basic principles on how to establish spiritual stability. If we need anything today, it is more spiritual stability. And so last week we studied about standing firm. And then we move into these seven practical principles, and this is the first one, cultivating harmony in the church fellowship. Cultivating harmony in church fellowship, or as I said, peace and harmony, the necessity of peace and harmony for spiritual stability. The, the fellowship and the support of the body of Christ is an important factor. It's an essential factor in developing and maintaining spiritual stability. You cannot do it apart from the fellowship, and you cannot have a good fellowship void of peace and harmony. The general strength of a fellowship becomes the strength of each individual. There is an old saying that says a, change, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Perhaps that has some application to this truth, but the more isolated a believer is from Christians, the more spiritually unstable he or she will be, especially those who have isolated themselves from the body of Christ completely. And so the church should be a place. It should be a place where people support each other. It should be a place where they hold each other accountable and a place where they care for each other. That is, it should be a communion, a communion of of life in which believers restore those who have fallen into sin and bear each other's burdens. If you want a proof on that, Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. It's Galatians 6, 1 and 2. The church is to admonish the unruly. It is to encourage the faint-hearted. It is to help the weak and be patient with everyone. That's a direct quotation from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. But I want you to get this. I, wa I want you to really understand it. Paul knew. 
Paul knew that such edifying ministry could take place only in the atmosphere of harmony. The reason that you cannot go to a place and support each other, hold each other accountable, care for one another, where you can restore a fallen brother or bear the, uh, another person's burdens or admonish the unruly or encourage the faint-hearted or help the weak or be patient forever. And the reason you cannot do that is because there is no spirit of harmony in the church, if that is the case. There's simply one command of Scripture. Repent. Repent. The reason that you see so many churches splitting is because there is no peace and harmony. Consequently, there is no stability in that church. If, if the church body was able to truly support each other, hold each other accountable, and care for each other, if it was really able to restore and bear the burdens of each other, and to admonish and to, and to encourage and to help, and to, and to be patient with everyone, it would be as a result because it was a harmonious body. They're all pulling the same direction. They're all pulling people towards Christ. The call of the church is not comfort, it's holiness. So therefore, any threat to the church's unity must be confronted. Unfortunately, in most cases, it's certainly the experience of many I know, the way that a church deals with confrontation is they just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Usually they'll dismiss an employee or they'll run off a, a family when all that is necessary is just a understanding. We're all on the same side pulling together in a spirit of harmony. And I'm going to show you that in this text. I'm going to actually show you that Paul lays out in the Scripture exactly how you arrive at that harmony. Paul dealt with the serious threats to the Philippian church, as I'm going to review with you in a moment. But he says, I urge, underline that word, I urge Euodia, I urge, Syntyche, notice I urge, I urge, he's going to say in a moment, to live in harmony in the Lord. You see, he identified the problem in specific terms. He called it what it was, naming the two women who were involved. He did this very publicly. Now, why would he do it publicly? Because their disagreement was public. If it was done in private, if it had been a private disagreement, no one knew about it, you would not even be reading about it. But because it was a public sin and a public uh, appeal to the integrity of the church and the harmony and the peace of the church, and these two women were destroying that, he publicly called them out. This is a righteous and holy thing to do, especially according to what the Scripture says, to admonish the unruly and to restore the, the fallen. And so then he is exhorting a third person to resolve the crisis. And notice it's not a play on words in English. He says, I urge Euodia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion. Indeed, true companion. True companion is a person. It's not indeed true companions. True companion is not the only recipient of the Philippian letter. In a moment, I'm going to show you who true companion is. That is a person. It's an individual. And since conflict between influential people in a church will generate instability throughout the congregation, 
the true quarreling women at Philippi posed a danger to the entire church's stability. Moreover, there was a real possibility that the Philippians would become critical and they would become bitter and they would become vengeful, hostile, unforgiving, and most notoriously proud. They would become proud. Therefore, Paul knew that unless these decisive actions or a decisive action was taken quickly, the Philippian church, his sweetheart church, would dissolve into so many that have followed after it into a divisive, hostile, factionist body, broken and divided. It was imperative that the Philippians be, as it says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that, as it says in Colossians 3.14, in addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And so the first thing I want you to write down is this. Peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. Peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. The plea for all quarrels to quarrelers to agree in the Lord is what we see right here in the text. Peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. It is twice repeated, I urge, I urge. It shows Paul to be pleading. He's begging. Paul is in an encouraging mode as he addressed the issue of these divisive women in a very public manner. The apostle mentions of such a seemingly mundane manner after his lofty doctrinal teaching in Philippians chapter 2 and the warning against false teachers and the dangers thereof in Philippians chapter 3. But Paul understood that discord and divisiveness pose an equally crippling threat to the church as much as false doctrine and false teachers. Even if its doctrine is sound, disunity robs a church of its power and it destroys its testimony. And sadly... We all know this too well. And a church facing hostile enemies, especially the ones that are external, cannot afford to have its members fighting among themselves. Such infighting gives the enemies of the cross an avenue of attack. Moreover, the resulting discord and the disunity and the conflict could have devastated the integrity of the Philippian church's testimony. We read today and we hear today and we see today of the testimony of great ministers of the gospel who have impacted the world only to have been found out to have suffered great sin in their own life where they have, they have made choices that uh, only the grace of God and time can heal. And uh, it has denigrated and destroyed the testimony of these tremendous ministries. But more than ministries have been taken down, whole churches and congregations all over this world have been taken out because people refuse to agree in the Lord. They refuse to agree in the Lord. And there are hints earlier in this epistle 
of Paul concerning the Philippians church unity. Just turn over to Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. He urged them to stand fast in one spirit in defending the gospel. And I quote, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." We see that's the first hint. That's the first salvo that something is happening in this sweet church. He pled with them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, specifically in verses 1 and 2, to love each other and to be one, one accord and one mind. Look what he says. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose." That's Paul's joy was not complete implies that there was some discord already in the Philippian congregation that he is leading up to in this letter. He exhorted them to esteem others better than themselves, as he says, continuing in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A further hint of discord of the Philippians was where the Apostles' exhortation in verse 14. Look what he says. Do all things without complaining or argument. Say all. All. All what? All things. He says do all things without complaining or argument. Now notice what he had earlier hinted at. Paul now addressed directly. He addresses it directly, straight on. Little is known about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, but several facts about the situation are evident. First, they were church members not troublemakers from outside the congregation. They were within it. Second, their dispute was evidently not over a doctrinal issue. How do we know this? Well, if it had been, Paul would have resolved it by siding with the one who was correct and rebuking the one who was in error. A very pastoral thing to do. No. Third, they were prominent women, well respected by the Philippian congregation. Four, they may have even heard Paul preach on the banks of the Gangites River. Preach on the banks of the Gangite River when he first came to Philippi. You can read about it all in Acts 16. Acts 16, 13 specifically. They may have been there. Already the dispute between these women was causing significant dissension amongst the Philippian fellowship. And Paul's solution to the quarrel was simple and direct. Now notice the text. He commanded the two women to live in harmony in the Lord. To live in harmony in the Lord. Now listen, there's a time when conflict is ac acceptable. There is a time when conflict is accept acceptable. Namely, when the truth is at stake. When the truth is at stake, 
conflict is necessary. Conflict is acceptable. Paul even confronted Peter when the latter was in error in a very public place in Galatians 2.11. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was acting like a Jew, or he was acting like a Christian until the Jews showed up, and then he started acting like a Jew. And he had forgotten the liberty that he has in Christ, that, he'd been cruci- that he had been crucified with Christ, that he no longer lives But the life that he now lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loves him and gave himself for him, Paul would go on to say in Galatians 2.20. So he confronted him publicly because his sin was publicly and he was denigrating the truth. The Apostle John also did not shrink from conflict for the sake of truth. In 3 John 9-10 through it says, I wrote something to the church but... Diostrephes, whose love to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Boy, I tell you what, that's a pretty good warning. John's coming, and he's coming with the righteous God with him. And this man... He better repent and turn because when John gets there, he's going to call him out and expose him. Why? Because the truth's at stake. That is an acceptable time for conflict. The truth is at stake. But I want you to understand something. Mere personal conflict must be restored, resolved, and harmony restored. Personal conflict must be resolved and personal harmony restored. So Paul commanded Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony. To live in harmony. Now the Greek text literally reads, to be of the same mind. To be of the same mind. An essential prerequisite if Christians are to live in harmony, you have to be of the same mind. To the quarreling faction-ridden Corinthian church, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, he said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Peter also urges his reader in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, saying, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And so the point is agreement between Euodia and Syntyche was essential. And the sphere in which they had to find their harmony was in the Lord. They had to find their harmony in the Lord. Therefore, therefore Paul knew that if they both got right with the Lord, they would get right with each other. So it is absolutely necessary Peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord to resolve conflict and restore harmony. You see, because of the seriousness of their disagreement, however, Paul realized that Euodia and Syntyche needed the church's help to resolve their animosity. Paul recognized the church was there to help resolve the animosity. 
That's what the church is there for, is to resolve. Our Redeemer is a Redeemer. He's a Restorer. The church be becoming a place where animosity is birthed is anathema to what God has taught the church to be. It's not a place where animosity is to be birthed. It's where animosity is to be healed. And so, peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. In fact, the Greek portion translated indeed expresses a strong affirmation and could be translated yes and certainly. And so peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. It's a necessity that the quarrelers appeal to agreement in the Lord. But number two, peace and harmony require action. This is the last point. Peace and harmony require action. You see, the need is for a true friend, a yoke fellow, to step in and help any who are quarreling. And thus we come to a fascinating portion of this scripture. When Paul addressed someone whom the scripture identifies as true companion, the word true companion, you need to write this down because it's a name. It's a name just like Euodia and Syntyche. I want you to write this name down. True companion, true companion is Susagos. S-U-Z-U. G-O-S. Now, this isn't just an exercise in Greek. True companion is a proper noun because it is a person. Susagos is the name of the person. So you have Euodia, Syntyche, and Susagos. Now, I know your Bible doesn't translate it that way. The 1995 New American Standard Version of the Bible says New says true companion, but the Greek word is Susagos. Now let me show you why this is important. Susagos means yoke fellow. It means yoke fellow. And it refers to someone, listen, it refers to someone who shares a common burden. The picture is one of two oxen pulling the same load. Several possibilities. Possible explanations for the identity of this individual have been offered, and I'll just give you uh, just a, a taste of what some have said. Some believe he was an individual Paul knew but chose not to name. But since it is in, in the immediate context, Paul named Euodia and Syntyche and Clement, why should he not have named this individual a true companion, why should he have not called him Susagos if indeed his name? The Philippians surely knew who he was. Whether or not Paul named him, they knew who he was. They knew what kind of man he was because it wasn't by his name, but it was by his deeds. And others argue that Paul used the singular term Susagos in a collective sense to refer to the Philippian church as a whole. Well, the best explanation is to leave it, however, that Susagos untranslated is to leave it untranslated into English and use it as a proper name, and I'll show you why. His name refers to the yoke or collar that was fitted around the neck of oxen while they plowed. The collar attached the plow and held the two oxen together so that they would pull together and more quickly accomplish the task before them. Therefore, yoke fellow means a person who pulls and works cooperatively with others. That's what we see here. 
That's what the Greek word is, true companion, yoke fellow, suzagos. In fact, Paul made similar plays on words. For example, in Philemon 10 and 11, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, he says, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Do you know what Onesimus means? Useful. So he says, I appeal to you, my child. I appeal to you for my child useful. It says in the Greek. But his name is Onesimus. It's a proper name. Just as Susagos is a proper name. As Onesimus means useful, Susagos means yoke fellow. But that's not all. Barnabas lived up to his name. Many of you know what Barnabas means. In Acts chapter 4, 36, Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. Thus, Susagos is a genuine yoke fellow, just as Onesimus was genuinely useful and Barnabas was a true son of encouragement. Now, Susagos was probably one of the overseers or elders that are mentioned in verse 1. He is probably one of the overseers, one of the elders mentioned in verse 1. Yet the elders had obviously not resolved the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche since it was still going all on. So what does Paul do? Paul reminds Susagos of his duty by writing, I ask you also to help these women. So he admonishes him, the yoke fellow, the elder, the overseer. He admonishes him. He says, I ask you to help these women. Even more so, Paul also had a personal reason for wanting Euodia and Syntyche to be reconciled. They had shared in his struggle in the cause of the gospel. That's what the Bible says. They had shared in his cause. They had shared in his struggle. The Greek word sunatheleo means shared my struggle. It means to fight alongside, to labor together with Syntyche and Euodia. They, they worked alongside of sunatheleo. They worked alongside of Paul. And Paul is telling Susagos, you need to restore these women. You need to bring them together in harmony. And it requires your action. It requires your action in the Lord. As noted above, Euodia and Syntyche may have been the two women who heard Paul preach when he first came to Philippi. Just to give you a bit of history, it's all written in Acts chapter 16. He, but Paul says here, he says, you need to, they shared in his struggle in the cause of the gospel. Well, what do we know about them sharing in his struggle? Well, in the founding of the Philippian church in Acts 16, we see there was quite a struggle. And I just wish to give you an overview momentarily, just for a moment. For you see, they probably witnessed the very turbulent events that marked the founding of the Philippian church. After Lydia's conversion in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, the apostle and his ministry team stayed in her home in verse 15. After being harassed for several days by a fortune-telling demon-possessed uh, fortune demon girl, Paul finally uh, cast the demon out of her. 
Her masters were infuriated at the loss of her money-making potential, and Paul was, and Silas were hauled before the authorities. And as a result, the two preachers were beaten and thrown into jail. This is again in Acts 16. That's verses 22 through 24. But God sent an earthquake and released them from the prison, which led to the jailer's conversion in verses 25 through 34 of Acts 16. And after discovering to their horror that Paul was a that they had beaten and wrongly imprisoned a Roman citizen and frightened authorities begged Paul and Silas to leave Philippi at once. And they did so after the last visits to believe that they believed happened to have gathered at Lydia's house in Acts chapter 16 verse 40. So you come full circle. Probably Euodia and Syntyche were there and saw all of this. So here's what I want you to take away at this point. The tragic conflict between Euodia and Syntyche reveals that even the most mature, faithful, and committed people can become so selfish as to be embroiled in controversy if they are not diligent to maintain unity. Diligent to maintain unity. In parting with these words, there's just a little bit more mentioned here. And then I wish to give you the conclusion. There were most assuredly other Philippians in the congregation whom the apostle wished to acknowledge. Nothing is known about this man Clement that's mentioned in your text in verse 3. So there is no way to identify him with Clement who was the bishop of Rome at the close of the first century as some have done in error. The name was a common one, and to make sure he did not leave anyone out, Paul mentioned the rest of his fellow workers, as you'll notice in your text. It does not matter that their names are not in the book of Philippians. What matters is because of Paul's work and the Lord Jesus Christ, their names are in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. The book of life is the register where God keeps the names of the redeemed. I could spend 20 minutes on this alone, but that's for another day. Their names were written in that book, as the Bible says in Matthew 25, 34, and Ephesians chapter 1, 4, and 2 Timothy 1, 9. 1, 9 their names were written in that book from eternity past. These are God's people called to believe. So in conclusion, peace and harmony require agreement in the Lord. It requires agreement in the Lord. The plea is for all quarrelers to agree in the Lord. The source of the disturbance in the church was due to the prominent ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. They were the cause. Who they were and what caused the trouble between them is not known and it is not important. Only one thing is known about them. They were quarrelers. They were quarrelers, two women who differed and who bickered and who argued and criticized and dissented and murmured and grumbled. And they are remembered for eternity because their names are written in this book. Note what Paul did. He pleaded for these two ladies to get their minds together in the Lord. Surely, brother, surely, sister, you can come together in the Lord. Surely, if a person is living and moving and having his being in the Lord, then he is walking and serving the Lord. 
he is consumed, he or she is consumed with the Lord and His mission. And there is no time for arguing, arguing and divisiveness. In fact, the very opposite is true. He has time only for joining hands with others who are living and moving in the Lord, all seeking to fulfill the Lord's mission upon the earth. A person walking the Lord is consumed with keeping the presence of the Lord alive in his heart and in his life every moment. His thoughts are upon the Lord, his mission, not upon the differences with other believers in arguing and divisiveness. Do you hear what I said? Those that are walking in the Lord, his thoughts are upon the Lord and his mission, not upon differences with other believers in arguing and divisiveness. That can include a whole myriad of things in the culture and context we live in today. Peace and harmony requires action. Not only agreement in the Lord, but as I've shown you, peace and harmony requires action. The need for a true friend. The need for a true friend to step in and help the ones who are quarreling. Remember, the yoke fellow means a person who pulls and works cooperatively with the other. The very fact that Paul would ask him to help these two quarreling ladies show that he was in fact highly esteemed. Paul felt that he cared that the two quarrelers would listen to him and that he could solve the dispute and bring about a reconciliation in the Lord with his action. Moreover, the yoke fellow is the person who should step in when quarrels and divisiveness begins to arouse their poisonous head. Reality, because the yoke fellow is a person especially gifted by God to bring reconciliation and peace to the church. Note also a message is given to the yoke fellow as well as to the two quarrelers. The yoke fellow is to help, and it's not an option. It's not an option. God has called and gifted him with a loving and caring na nature, and he is especially suited for this kind of ministry. Therefore, he was to use his gift by stepping forward and doing his best to bring reconciliation and peace. So wrapping up, loving unity in the fellowship of believers creates an environment of stability. It is necessary to have harmony and peace to have spiritual stability. But discord leaves a church collectively and its members individually vulnerable and unstable. Spiritual stability, therefore, requires peace and harmony in the church. And no wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed indeed are the peacemakers. Blessed indeed are the peacemakers. Let us pray. God, we do thank You for the Word of God. We thank You that this Word is a sharp and, and powerful we thank You, Lord, that it speaks to the need of our day of peace and harmony. Lord, this speaks to not only our going out and coming in of the church, but our going out and coming in and our labors and leisures in the world in which we live. We must go out with our thoughts and our minds in the Lord, and we must go to action to do our best to resolve and to resolve conflict 
and to be about the peacemaking that Jesus Christ calls so blessed. I am reminded we need to be part of the solution, not the problem. And it is my prayer that you will use this message to any who are struggling in their churches right now to not elevate the grumbling or to, to acknowledge the complaining or the argumentation, but to set to work immediately if they know of these things to bring agreement in the Lord and to do their part as a suzagos, to do their part as a yoke fella, to do their part as one who can bring about the bonds of peace in the Lord. And I ask this, Father, that you do this today. You do this today amongst church people, amongst church ministers, amongst church bodies, that, Father, the visible church may stand spiritually strong in these times in which are trying men's souls. We ask these things believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the countenance of the Lord turn itself upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.